Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. It's a very odd feeling to be in a room with a patient who is COVID positive and you know, just thinking to yourself, all that I have protecting me from this virus, like a mask and goggles and a gown, is somewhat surreal. In today's episode, another of our special COVID-19 podcasts, I'm speaking with Dr. Anna O'Kelly, a young doctor working very much on the coronavirus front line in one of the hardest hit countries, the United States, where more than one million people are now infected with COVID-19. Dr. O'Kelly, who's done her medical study and training at Oxford University and the US's Johns Hopkins University, among other institutions, is now working as a second-year resident physician in internal medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. That's one of that state's busiest hospitals. She is a doctor working in the ICU. While she's had at least eight years training, she's been a practicing doctor for just two years. Dr. Anna O'Kelly, thank you so much for sparing us some of your incredibly valuable time. Do you mind if I call you Anna? Please, of course. Anna, where are you right now? Have you been able to come home to your own home every day since this crisis began? Yes, I have, thankfully. So what are you doing now that you're home? So what's nice, and I mean, today actually is my first day off in a while. So today I've had a pretty easy day, but it's been the transition from work to home. It's actually a very kind of psychologically interesting one at the moment, especially when you live fairly close to work, which I'm very fortunate to do, because you effectively have, I mean, you spend your whole day just surrounded by COVID, whether you're in the PPE or not. You know, you're you're spending time in spaces where you know the virus is. You're having to eat in spaces where you know the virus is. Obviously, taking care to wash your hands, et cetera, et cetera. But it's I used to kind of be able to just walk in the door and take my dog for a walk, and that was that. And now it's like a half an hour ordeal of being very particular about where to take scrubs off and how to put them in a, you know, I have a bag that I put them in and then showering immediately before touching anything and then making sure I've cleaned all the doorknobs and the light switches between coming in the door. It's become much more of a production than it used to be. You used to just walk in the door. Yeah. So this is your daily routine, just coming into your own home. Oh, it's, it's a half an hour production, at least. So you said this is your day off. How many days have you been working through? So I've been the last seven days on. And, you know, normally our schedules are actually pretty grueling generally. But we've been uh, trying to adopt a little bit of a seven days on, seven days off approach for the last few days, just to ensure that, you know, we... A, are are able to rest appropriately because there's just increased stress at work that we're not, you know, it's just of a different variety than we're used to having. And then importantly, it reduces provider exposure. Anna, you are, as I understand it, a second year resident physician in internal medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital right there in one of the major U.S. cities of Boston. And you're working in the ICU of one of Boston's major hospitals. 
can you tell us what your front line looks like now and over the immediate past few weeks? Oh, yeah. So we, you know, the, the structure of the day is fairly similar to what the structure in an ICU is normally. You round in the morning with the attending physicians, all of the residents, and then the nurses of the various patients. And at that point, you're making decisions about vent, you know, how to manipulate the ventilator, what to do with blood pressure medicine, how to change their sedation. So making a variety of different medical decisions at that time. But truthfully, one of the most important things that you're doing is putting a plan in place for the day and a plan that you can then call families about and update them. That has been one of the biggest changes for us working in critical care now is that families can't come in and visit their loved ones. And that has been a huge burden. Normally in the ICU, families can come in pretty much 24-7. They can see their loved ones. They can speak to their loved ones. They can hold their loved ones' hands. And now they can't do that. And in terms of, you know, quality of care for patients, that's a huge, uh, a huge disservice to them because truthfully, we don't know whether patients can hear their loved ones when they're intubated and sedated. I always tell families that we behave like they can. We speak to them. We tell them updates. And now we're in the position of having to be the main conduit for families to learn about how their loved ones are doing. And it's so challenging for families. I think that's been the toughest as a clinician. That has been the toughest. Hearing the voices of families who are just desperate for good news, for updates of any kind, and sometimes not being able to give them good news, sometimes being able to give them only limited news. So, I mean, dealing with families must be a whole new level because of this isolation. So you say they're not allowed to come in. Is that because you cannot control the, you know, you cannot put the normal infection controls, nor can you spare the protective personal equipment to give to family members? I think it's more the former. It's more that, you know, just to minimize risk to patients, both to the patient they're coming to see as well as other patients, we just have to limit the amount of exposure that is there. And, and honestly, I mean, we as clinicians every day, we have to log in our symptoms before we're allowed to go to work ourselves. So there's a pretty strict screening process in place to try and protect everybody. And I guess the other really difficult thing is telling families bad news. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's never easy, even in the best of times. But certainly now when, you know, they may not be able to see their loved one before their loved one dies and they're hearing about it over the phone, that never gets easier. Has the hospital been able to bring in sort of any different ways to deal with that? I don't know, computer, I mean, not exactly a Zoom meeting, but I don't want to make light of it, but some way they can see or speak to their loved one over a digital network? Yeah, so uh, often patients will have their own cell phones with them and families and nurses can often try to get into the phone and then you know, have loved ones face. I mean, we've had a number of family members FaceTime with their loved ones at, at the very least leave voicemails. And the nurses have been amazing at playing voicemails for patients. And 
you know, you'll have a daughter say, my dad just really can't hear. So you've got to put it really close to his ear. And, you know, people have been so good at trying to facilitate that. And then we are allowing, so when patients are uh, actively dying, we are allowing one family member at a time to come in. Mm. But, you know, sometimes we're not able to accurately predict when this is going to happen. And so sometimes families don't have the opportunity to. Oh, Anna, that just must be heartbreaking to see this uh, line of of people who are losing their lives, let alone the families trying to deal with it. But I understand, you know, you try and ask patients before they're intubated, and we'll get to intubation in a minute. What do you ask them to do in terms of speaking to their loved ones? You know, it's just, you know, normally when we intubate patients, we do it with the hope and the expectation that we will be able to take the tube out. And right now, it's just harder to predict who will fall into that category. Meaning who will survive and will be able to then breathe on their own. Yeah, exactly. And so it's a personal mission of mine that I've just been out telling patients this because I think it's important for them to know. And, you know, when patients then say, okay, great, so what happens if you can't take the tube out? What happens if you can't extubate me? You know, that's just, that's such a hard conversation to have, but I think it's important to have it with them so that they know what to expect. And it's, it's, we have this when we consent families for intubation if their loved ones can't do it. And I think it's important when we do it with patients who are alert as well. So are you getting those patients to call their families before they are intubated? Yeah. To have perhaps a last conversation? Yeah, exactly. Anna, was your particular intensive care unit a new, uh, a makeshift one, obviously a good one, but a makeshift ICU set up specifically to cope with the surge of really sick COVID-19 people? Yeah, it was. It previously was a neurology neurosurgery floor. Okay, so this is a whole new floor in the hospital given over to ICU just for COVID-19 ill people. Yeah, it is one of our surge ICUs, exactly. How big has that surge of COVID patients been? Well, we've had to open a number of new ICUs. So by my count, and this may not be 100% accurate, but we have eight or nine normal ICUs. So that'll be neurology or neurosurgical critical care units, cardiac critical care units, medical critical care units. But now to accommodate the surge of patients, we've increased our footprint for critical care. And we now have about 13 or 14 critical care units. Wow. And how many beds, therefore, does that mean your hospital has given over to? Do you know this? I mean, I'm asking you questions that perhaps you don't know because you're so heavily into caring for people, but roughly how many beds, how many sick people are you dealing with? I don't know the actual number. I'd be happy to follow up about that. I don't know the actual number of ICU beds that we have. Our unit has been about, we've had anywhere between 20 and 30 patients in just our unit alone. Yeah, 
Amazing. Anna, I mean, you, again, you may be so overwhelmed by keeping up with the broader numbers, but since around the 25th of March, when numbers of infections were still fairly low, Massachusetts then started to see exponential growth in new cases of infection. And by the 27th of April, so literally a month later, Massachusetts alone has over 58,000 COVID-19 cases of infections, and you've had over 3,000 deaths in just one state. I mean, in a way, this is a dreadful textbook epidemic curve upwards. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's everywhere. It's all anybody can talk about. You know, the streets are empty. We're really ramping up testing in the hospital. And actually, it's been interesting over the past month because about a month ago, about, you know, March 27th, I was working not in a critical care unit, but just one of the normal hospital wards when all of this was happening. And there was so much confusion at the beginning about when do we test patients and do we test all patients and do we have the ability to test all patients? And what is reassuring is that in that time, though the number of cases have obviously dramatically risen, our ability and our streamlined approach to testing at least within the hospital and to setting in place appropriate PPE expectations and availability, et cetera, has also improved. That has been a very interesting transition as a practitioner to see. Massachusetts has just started to come down from the peak numbers of deaths per day as I'm looking at the John Hopkins University graphs and charts just in the past few days. So just more broadly around Boston, you've had, and you're still in the throes, of fairly strict isolation and stay-at-home rules. Can you just give us a run-through of those? Yeah, exactly. So I think the governor just recently increased the stay-at-home timeline to May 18th. And so, you know, people are still out, but in obviously a very limited capacity. And Cambridge, Massachusetts, just on the other side of the river, is implementing mandatory mask wearing, and there will be fines for people not wearing masks. And I I would think it's fairly reasonable for Boston to follow in suit, but we'll see. We've seen many sort of wonderful and heartfelt YouTube messages from health workers and from doctors saying, you know, for us to be able to go to work, for you health workers to be able to go to work, you in the community need to stay at home. Are you seeing people abide by that in your city? More or less. You know, often there's like a collection of people at the dog park. I'm not quite sure they're six feet apart, but in general, most people when you're walking by the river or out on the street, most people seem to be pretty respectful of those rules. Anna, just back into the hospital and your work, you say it's been, I mean, fairly all-consuming. How would you describe the scene that you really confront each day in hospital for the past month or six weeks? You know, it's an, it's this very odd kind of experience because, as I said, like the actions of what we do are very similar to what we always do in critical care. But there's just a heightened level of anxiety, which which is improving. But, you know, it's this very it's a very odd feeling to be in a room with a patient who is covid positive And, you know, just thinking to yourself, all that I have protecting me from this virus that has 
completely decimated economies, killed millions, you know, I actually don't even know how many people have died from COVID and COVID-related complications too. And people are not just dying from COVID, they're dying from not going to the hospital because they're concerned about getting COVID-19, dying from complications where maybe there's not enough outpatient procedures that maybe normally would happen or not happening. And so there's so many repercussions from this over and above the, the disease itself. But it is a very odd feeling to be kind of staring at the enemy, so to speak, in the room with these patients. And they're they are just people and it's not them, it's the virus. But to just have, you know, like a mask and goggles and a gown protecting you is somewhat surreal. Mm. Uh, so that, I think, is the biggest change. And, and it's just it's quieter in many ways without families. We miss them. <laughs> So are doctors at your hospital, and perhaps more senior than you, I just want to remind our listeners that you are a second year resident. So that essentially means you've been practicing as a doctor for what, two years or almost two years? Almost two. And before that, many years of study at uh, university. But are senior doctors at your hospital having to make difficult choices about who gets the ICU bed, who gets the ventilator, or do you have enough ICU beds and ventilators for all the sick patients who need them? Yeah, so that was certainly a big concern a couple of weeks ago that we were going to be having to have those conversations with families and with patients. Thus far, we have been able to expand our critical care footprint enough that we've, to my knowledge, not been having to have some of those challenging conversations. Certainly, we have enough beds in our unit, at least. There's always a bed empty to you know, ensure that there is space for people to come if they need it. I think that you can expand in, in many ways, but you just can't come up with the ventilators. And so that, you know, has been certainly a challenge, but to my knowledge, we've not been having to actively turn people away the way that I know they were doing in Italy. Well, that must be some comfort to you. We know the majority of COVID positive patients don't need to be hospitalised and they do recover at home and, and many don't even have more than mild symptoms. But can you give us a picture of what you are seeing in those who do need to be hospitalised? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's actually in, it's interesting in that many of the patients come in with almost identical stories. Not everybody, but most of them have been home for a number of days feeling very sick with fevers in particular, sore throat, a variety of other symptoms, fatigue, trying to not come in, trying to isolate and self-quarantine, and then eventually not being able to breathe in particular. It tends to be that it's not so much fatigue or sore throat that bring people in. It's really that they say, you know, I just can't breathe as well anymore. And so then they come in and it's a very delicate balance, actually, the way that you resuscitate these patients, the way that you kind of start to heal them, because often they haven't had enough fluid over the past few days, especially with fever. You have a lot of insensible loss with fever. And so they're coming in dry um, and needing fluid, needing IV fluid. But yet the concern with COVID is that you develop acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. And that is a lung condition that really is very sensitive to fluid. 
And so wanting to minimize the amount of fluid that patients get from a protection of the lung perspective, but also trying to ensure that they get resuscitated appropriately for their blood pressure to rise, et cetera. So the resuscitation, even prior to intubation, is a delicate balance. Wow. So this ARDS, so what does that do to the lung? Does every COVID patient get ARDS? Pretty much. I mean, it's similar to, you see, you can see ARDS with the flu, but it's definitely what we're seeing here with COVID. And it effectively, the lungs become very sticky. And the way that you treat ARDS is these patients get intubated and then they require very low kind of volumes of air. It's called tidal volume is the actual parameter that you change on the ventilator. But the main premise is that by reducing the volume of air that you give these patients, their lungs, you know, the little air sacs, little alveoli that are engaged in oxygen and carbon dioxide and exchange in the lung, that limiting the volume of air that those little air sacs are seeing allows over time the lungs to heal and recover. And so by giving these very small tidal volumes, these very small volumes of air, you allow the lungs to repair. But the challenge is that that's extremely uncomfortable. So to be like them taking small breaths, little small breaths. That's exactly it. And it's just very unnatural for us to do that. Mm. And so you end up having to sedate patients in order to have their bodies comply with what you need to do on the ventilator. And so that is a very delicate balance in terms of how to help these patients recover in the long term. Because to keep these patients, you know, to to keep their lungs kind of in a safe space to be healing, it's a really slow and steady process. And you really rely on the sedation in particular to to get people to do what is very unnatural for them to do normally. Wow. Now, we, we know that it is severely hitting older people, but are you seeing many severely ill younger people in ICU too? Oh, yeah. It's certainly, I would say the majority of the patients that we've been seeing are between 60 and 75. It's the majority. Certainly people older than that, but definitely people younger than that as well. And even within that age range, they're healthy. I mean, we've got people who've been running, you know, runners, hikers. They're not all unhealthy people who are coming in with a number of medical conditions. So, and you're having to put some of these healthy, fit, younger runners onto ventilators as well. That context is often the hardest for families to understand because, you know, so much of what we do generally, COVID aside, is try and keep ourselves healthy so that if we do get sick, we're in the best chance of, you know, surviving and being able to recover. But with this virus, it's very equal opportunity in who it is impacting. And, and it's very hard to predict when patients get sick, how sick they're going to be. Yeah. So I guess at this stage, and I know this isn't your specialty, we don't know why some people are recovering or some people aren't even getting more than mild symptoms, but we don't know why some recover on their own and why some need a breathing apparatus. Do we? No, I mean, there's thought that the individual inflammatory response 
does impact this. So what I mean by that is some people, when they get infected, and it's hard to predict who this is going to be, have very robust inflammatory responses to the virus. And so what that means in practice is they flood their lungs with fluid and the lungs get swollen and there's mucus in the lungs, et cetera, et cetera. And even though that is supposed to be helping the body fight whatever invader is there, be it a virus or bacteria or whatever, it ends up complicating the way that the virus and the lung interact with the development of ARDS. And so it's thought that perhaps the reason that some of these younger patients are developing severe ARDS and some are not may be related to individual inflammatory responses that are very hard to predict kind of a priori. So that's just, you know, depends on who we are or our genetics or there's no reason for one person to have a different inflammatory response than another. Right, exactly. Yeah. So putting people on these invasive breathing ventilators, that is very invasive, isn't it? Can you just give us a brief picture of how difficult that is, you know, for patients? Yeah, there's a whole team. So there's the whole primary critical care team. And then when we intubate patients, often we have a whole second team come, an anesthesia team to come in and to intubate them. Just for the benefit of listeners, intubate really means to put a tube down into your system. Yep, exactly. And then that tube is connected to the ventilator that is outside of the body. And it is, it is effectively a breathing tube that goes into the main kind of pipe into your lungs, allowing both lungs to get the oxygen that they need. Now, you've worked in a lot of ICUs, even in your young career, and even though you are still young, how would you compare this virus from what you've seen, this disease, to any others you've experienced? Well, it's a little bit challenging to compare in that we've never before, certainly in recent times, seen as many patients with ARDS. So often in a critical care service, you may have a couple of patients with ARDS from the flu, from some other kind of viral infection. But now all of these patients have ARDS. And so that is certainly very different from the usual distribution of disease that you see in a critical care unit. But just in more general terms, is it so much more potentially dangerous than the flu or the fact that many countries are kind of hopefully over their peak and coming down after, what, two, three, four months? Does that make it any better than any other major virus we've seen? Better is not the right word. (laughs) Yeah, no, but even the nature of the ARDS that is developing with COVID is different from the kind of ARDS that we see with the flu. It's just more severe. The lungs are just, they're just stickier. Even though both are the same syndromes, the character of the syndrome here with COVID is just more challenging to manage. So that means it's more dangerous for patients. Yeah, it's more dangerous for patients because we're having a harder time treating it than we would normally. Yeah, and this is because of this ARDS, this acute respiratory distress syndrome. Yeah, exactly, and the kind of ARDS that is developing. (laughs) 
So I imagine your days have been incredibly long, the days you are working, very long, very hard days. Can you just give us a a sense of what sort of decisions you're having to make? I mean, I guess you're talking about your being in teams. Yeah, and I think the team is the key structure here because As so often happens with teamwork, the more people thinking about patients from slightly different perspectives, the better. And so decisions are made with our supervising physicians, nurses, the respiratory therapists, a variety of different providers. And the decisions often are about, well, how can we advance this patient's care today? How can we lighten their sedation and wake them up a little bit so they may be able to hear a voice message from their loved one? How do we try and lessen the amount of support that they are getting on the ventilator so that we can see how their lungs themselves have progressed? Are there any changes that we need to make to their blood pressure medicines to facilitate all of this. So the key with with getting through this is really a slow and steady approach where basically the big decisions are what can we do to let the lungs show us what they can do on their own and how do we reduce the amount of support that they need in order to be able to get the oxygen that the patient needs. Mm. How well has your hospital adapted? I have been extremely impressed with the way that the hospital has responded. Our leadership in the Department of Medicine has been unbelievable in terms of just creating new ICUs out of nowhere, of deploying residents and attendings to these new units, of taking nurses, critical care nurses from, you know, surgical ICUs and helping them adapt to now medical ICUs. It's been really extraordinary to see. And as an on-the-ground frontline provider, that is invaluable to feel that there is support behind you and that there are, you know, there's an evolving infrastructure in place to facilitate care and to facilitate your safety. So I've been very impressed. You talked before about when you intubate these ventilated patients, these very sick patients, it's a slow process. How long are they staying either on the ventilator for or in the ICU for? Are they not just getting over it in the 14 days that we're sort of told is the cycle of this virus? Well, yes and no. I mean, that, uh, you know, they are staying intubated for weeks, some 14 days, you know, some more, some less but certainly longer than we would see with other kind of lung disease. Um, And a lot of that is because they need this prolonged period of little, small, little breaths of air in order to recover. Do you and your colleagues feel like you're winning? Are more patients surviving than dying? I don't know. I, I don't know about that. My sense would be yes, more patients are surviving than dying. And we are increasingly celebrating all of our extubation. So these, when we're actually able to take the breathing tube out on our floor, for instance, we've started announcing it over the loudspeaker when, you know, patient in room, whatever has been able to have the tube taken out. And it's such a morale boost because we become connected to these patients and we become connected to their families. And we all want the success story of seeing these patients move on and move out of the ICU. It's uh, it's an amazing feeling oh. when you have been 
taking care of somebody for days on a slow and steady approach to finally see them, you know, smile or talk for the first time in weeks. It's just an unbelievable feeling. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's amazing that, you know, you can celebrate this extraordinary feat of having saved someone's life. How are you and your colleagues coping emotionally? I think the days are up and down. And even within a day, it can be up and down. We need these wins. We need these wins with patients being extubated because it reminds everybody of why we're all working so hard to come in and work these grueling hours and put ourselves at risk just to see the smile on somebody's face or to be able to call a family member and say we've been able to take the tube out. I mean, these are memories and experiences that I will have with me for the rest of my life and are just so meaningful. Mm. And so it's it's interacting with family and it's supporting each other. It's a very bonding experience to be frontline providers like this, supporting each other and patients. And yeah, not every day is a good day. And then it's important to be able to speak to your colleagues about that. Yeah. Anna, how perhaps are you personally coping with the deaths that do happen on your floor in your hospital and patients dying alone? (sighs) The patients dying alone part is the hardest. And I think We all spend so long with these patients and nurses in particular that to us, it doesn't feel like they're dying alone because we spend so much of our days thinking about them and talking about them. Of course, you're with them. Absolutely. I suppose I meant just from their family, separated from their families. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's, that's terrible to have to call a family and say things are, you know, they've taken a turn for the worse. And and then to have all the children come on the phone or to try and get the spouse on the phone, you know, that is just so, those experiences are just so hard. Sometimes you, you just don't get over it. There are conversations that I have had that I will never be able to get over that were just so upsetting. Uh, but, you know, you you have to kind of keep going. And we all have different ways. I have a dog. I spend hours playing fetch with the dog as a way to kind of process a lot of what happens during the day. And I know that others of my colleagues have kids that they hold especially close when they go home at night. So we're, we all try and find ways to cope. But this will leave a lasting impression on everybody involved on so many levels. But truthfully, I think it's the fact that you're seeing so many patients die without their loved ones at their bedside. That is just very, very hard. Anna, you may not want to talk about this, but can I ask you, was there one of those conversations that you've had that you will never forget? Can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, there was an elderly patient who had been there for a number of weeks and I had been on service when he was initially intubated and I sat with him and explained to him what was going to happen. And he'd asked me, well, what happens if we can't take this breathing tube out? And I said, well, your loved ones um, will get together and they will make the best decision that they can for what to do. And, you know, I then went off service for a week came back on service, he was still there. 
And this gentleman, I mean, I've even told my family about this page. We're all rooting for this patient because it was just such a challenging conversation to have with him, kind of ask for him to ask, well, what, what is going to happen here? So I go back service. He's there. And then within, you know, 24, 48 hours really did take a turn for the worse. And to have to call his family and then have the discussion with them about what we were going to do that I had told him we may have to have to actually then have to have that conversation mm. was um, was challenging. Extraordinary. No, no young doctors should really be put in that position, should they? You know, it's medicine. It's the most incredible privilege to be a physician. It is something that I'm grateful for absolutely every single day because you you are intimately involved in the lives of people who, you know, would otherwise be total strangers. Yeah. And you know, even the other day I was calling on one of my daily updates to families and I said, "Well, I'm going off service now." And the woman I was speaking to started crying and she said, I just feel like you're part of our family at this point. We look forward to your calls and your updates. And, you know, that level of kind of emotional intensity is, is just an amazing privilege. And so, yes, of course, there are going to be challenging conversations that we have to have, but that's part of what you kind of sign up for. Yeah. And it's a privilege. As a young doctor, could you ever have imagined when you were studying all those years of study that you did, could you ever have imagined dealing with something like this? I mean, do you prepare oh, no. <laughs> for a pandemic? I mean, is there a course when you were at Oxford or John Hopkins Medical School learning about pandemics? Oh, my God, no. <laughs> Not at all. I think this is even, you know, even when we were hearing about this in Wuhan, I'm not sure that anybody thought that it was going to look like this a couple of months later. Yeah. Also, as a young doctor, you just talked about the privilege. Has this, you probably haven't even had time to think about it, but has this changed the way you think about doctoring, about medicine, about caring for people? You know, it has. I think the importance of including families in care has become very clear to me that, you know, even when we return to a time when families can come in and see their loved ones, you know, yes, of course, we, we talk with families, we have meetings, nurses update, etc. But I think it is especially important now to make sure that they understand the trajectory and yeah. the goals of our plan every day. And I think that communication with family has become very clear. And certainly moving forward, that will be a very core part of my practice. Anna, have you had many of your doctor and nurse colleagues infected with COVID that, you know, the sorts of things that we've seen happen in Europe? Thankfully not. I, I certainly have had colleagues who have been infected, but I have not had any colleagues I personally know well be intubated or hospitalized. No, but in your hospital, have many fallen ill with the virus? Yeah, and I think a, a decreasing percentage. I mean, we initially, certainly there were a number of exposures both in and outside of the hospital, as we've seen everywhere. But as we're getting better and better protective equipment, 
the numbers are dropping, which is good. Okay, so I was going to ask you about there have been huge issues around scarcity of protective personal equipment, really in most countries. You say you're on top of it there at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston? Well, it certainly feels like that. I mean, we have, I know that the hospital system and the state government have worked together to kind of buy equipment to help sanitize some of these N95 masks. And so I have never found even like a personal shortage of PPE that made, that was not always true. I think at the beginning when we were still trying to figure out how we were all going to navigate this, there was a lot of concern about limiting who was going to wear N95s and who was going to go in the room and, you know, how much was available. And we're hearing less and less talk of that. I just wanted to ask you, and again, you may not have had time to really come up for air and think about this, but the political side of this, the response from the US government, US authorities to this crisis, their management of it in arguably the richest country in the world, as your infections have dramatically increased right across the United States. Oh, I mean, it's a disgrace. (laughs) It's a total disgrace. And it is so disappointing to think that we have not been able to do a better job. And these are obviously my kind of personal beliefs on this, nothing to do with my institution. But when you see the kind of havoc that this virus wrecks on patients, on families, on providers, over and above the economy, just thinking about the citizens in this country, it is totally disgraceful that there is not more unity and clarity of thought at the executive leadership level. Most of us around the world, certainly in the the wealthier nations, are all living with some degree of lockdown in our homes. In Australia, we do consider ourselves very fortunate at this stage. What must we still do to protect ourselves as we all kind of open up more? What do you still need us to do? I know. I mean, and that's that also needs to be said that as providers, we are so grateful to people staying at home. And I appreciate all of the support that we get at the front line. But there's a reflection there of gratitude to everybody who is staying at home because it's just it's not easy. And we and truly, I can't even imagine because though work is more dangerous now than usual, I still get to go to work. And there's so many people who don't. So I think that just needs to be said that these efforts are not unrecognized about how challenging it is. I think in terms of being able to open up the economy further, at least from the front line, we need to make sure that we have enough ICU space. And hopefully over the past few months, Various countries have been able to bolster their critical care infrastructure enough that they'll be able to handle what I I think to be an inevitable surge that may come kind of after opening up. And I know there's still many, many countries where the infrastructure is not in place. But I think so from a hospital level, we need to make sure that we have the infrastructure in place with people working on, you know, this discussion about vaccinations is important because we need to figure out how do we ensure that the crisis that we saw months ago and then over the past few weeks of so many people dying and the surge overwhelming uh, hospitals, that we don't just delay that. We have to prevent that. 
and ongoing efforts of social isolation and or at least social distancing are going to be important. While I know a variety of different scientists are working to try to come up with a vaccine. So I think opening up is going to require the assurance of hospital infrastructure that's prepared ongoing efforts to socially distance and then keep going with the tremendous efforts to develop a vaccine. Anna O'Kelly, can you be optimistic about how this ends, that we beat it? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, there are everybody I know with a PhD in science is working hard to come up with a vaccine. It's been amazing to see so many different companies just stop their own efforts in order to turn to PPE. We as physicians and frontline providers are getting better at treating this. So I think there is absolute reason to be optimistic. I just think that we need to be cautious and recognize that that optimism is warranted, but will still require a lot of hard work from individual people to change their behavior to ensure that we don't have a surge. Well, Australians and really everyone around the world, I think, has looked on in horror at what's been unfolding, particularly in the United States and New York, with I think there's now more American deaths from COVID-19 in the last, what, month and a half than died in the whole of the Vietnam War conflict. Yeah. And we really, really appreciate you giving us your time of your lived experience in an ICU in one of the busiest hospitals in Boston, in Massachusetts, in the United States. Dr. Anna O'Kelly, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.